Jin Yu. How are we doing today? Good? You looking good? You sounding good? Thank God for his reckless love. Amen? Well, today I just want to share with you a message that the Lord birthed in my spirit. It's titled, The Times Are Changing. Yeah, it's probably a riff off of uh, Bob Dylan, but um, it's just, it's something that God had been stirring in my spirit. And when Phil said he was going to be taking some time off, I knew immediately this was the message that I wanted to bring forth because in the coming days and probably even years, we're going to find ourselves in a rebuilding mode. We'll be rebuilding our relationships, our churches, the communities we live in, but most importantly, we'll be rebuilding our lives. You see, in times of change, this often means that sometimes we have to be more committed to our future than to our comfort. You hear that? But in this endeavor, I think sometimes what we need is a plan, a roadmap of sorts to show us how to get there. And then sometimes we need the courage and the motivation to press on to what God is calling each one of us to do to our purpose in life, to our God-given destiny. Most of you know that when I choose to do something, I go all out. Tommy talked about this magnificent beard. Some of my friends call me metal beard. <laughs> I think it's the rust look on it. He also talked about last week how he started uh, running. You know, when you first start, you start walking. Then you start jogging. I call it woggling. <laughs> When I first started running, I set a goal. It was ambitious. I wanted to run 1,000 miles in a year. Crushed it. Next year, I said, I want to run 1,200 miles. Crushed that. Next year, I said, I want to run 1,500 miles. And that really stretched me. I mean, I was running every morning, getting up at 2.33 in the morning. But I had a goal. You see, when we're moving towards a goal, when we're moving towards something new and unfamiliar, it allows us to experience excitement. It presents us with opportunities to grow and learn new things. Last year, me and Sydney, um, we started uh, taking Okinawan Shore and Ru Karate. Yeah, I'm telling you what, you want to get in shape, you want to make your body do things that's never done before. Friday night, Sydney and I uh, got our seventh and eighth Q blue belts in both karate and kabuto. Amen. She rocked it. Oh my gosh, you want to talk about a proud dad moment? I was so proud of her. But needless to say, I'm a very goal-driven person. I like having a plan. But sometimes in life, I think it can be very easy to set goals. But there are other times where it can feel overwhelming and sometimes even paralyzing when we're in that point. Sometimes like you're stuck at the start line and you don't even know what direction to go. You know, for some, this sensation, it arises when we allow ourselves to be consumed with our past. But when we go into our past and we relive these things, we forget that God is there in the past. When we're afraid to go in the future and, you know, plan things out, we forget that God is going to be there in the future with us as well. God wants the very best in our life. And when we allow ourselves to be paralyzed like that, it robs us of our hope. And listen to me this morning. Our rear view mirrors are smaller for a reason. Amen? <laughs> so DNF, it's a term that's familiar to most athletes. It means did not finish. And I can remember running my first marathon down in Disney and literally vultures circling over my head as I'm running through the animal kingdom. But those words did not finish. They propelled me to keep going on, even when I was hurting, even when the voices in my head were telling me to quit, to give up. Even when at mile 20, I took a step and my foot sent a message to my brain, Houston, we have a problem. I thought I stepped in a puddle, 
My shoe was completely wet. How about a half-dollar size blister that burst? But that perseverance kept me going on to finish. Amen? And as time has gone on, I think, you know, I've completed some amazing adventures in life. But I think the term did not start is a much sadder reality to experience in life. You see, did not start, it means we were never in the race to begin with. And it's what happens when we rehearse our past, hoping to find a way to blame something or someone else for our mistakes, our troubles, and even our failures. By letting pride, anger, and even fear keep us in denial, it's a futile exercise. It shuts us out of the race that God has set before each one of us. You see, every one of us has a past, but in Christ we have a future that has the potential to turn even our mistakes even our failures into mere stepping stones to reach our God-given purpose. The road ahead for each one of us, ahead of our country, it's going to require a massive rebuilding effort. This makes the ability to lead, the ability to mend relationships, and the ability to have vision, all critical skills that we have to make sure that we have. And in this endeavor, I think Nehemiah is probably one of my favorite leaders that we find in the Bible He was truly an Old Testament OG. (laughs) You can laugh. Come on. (laughs) If you love history, one of my favorite books is called Jerusalem by Simon Sebag Montefiore, and it details every occupation of Israel from its inception to modern day. You see, throughout history, Jerusalem has been destroyed at least two times. It's been attacked 52 times. It was besieged 23 times, and it's been recaptured 44 times. And at this point in history, Jerusalem had been left in shambles for more than a century when Nehemiah felt that God was calling him to do something about the place where his ancestors were taken into exile. See, back in 586 B.C., so we're talking 2,600 years ago, for those that have a little bit of issue putting things in context, 2,600 years ago, the Babylonians, they conquered and they seized Jerusalem. They took its treasures and they took its choice inhabitants into captivity And Nehemiah would grow up in this faraway land in Babylon. Yet it would be Nehemiah who would lead the third major effort in 445 B.C. to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls that protected it. But when Nehemiah finally arrived after this three-month journey, he found a disorganized group of people. He saw a defenseless city with no walls to protect it. This was very troubling for him. You see, before the exile, Israel had its own language its own king, it had a mighty army, and it had an identity, but now it had none of these things. But what the Jews lacked the most was leadership, which meant there was no one to show them even where to start or what direction to try to take in rebuilding their city. So as soon as Nehemiah comes on the scene, he begins just what we call a back-to-the-basics program. He helped care for the people's physical needs by setting up a fair system of government. He focused on rebuilding the walls And then he cared for the inhabitants' spiritual needs by helping them rebuild their broken lives, which is what I believe a committed and what a God-honoring leader will look like. But of all of Nehemiah's traits, I think three stand out as what we really want to adhere to, what we really want to look in our own lives. The first is Nehemiah was a man of compassion. He cared about and he loved his people. Just four verses into this book and we're confronted with his compassion Nehemiah 1.4 says, When I heard the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Mm. I believe love is the foundation of Christian leadership because leadership without love just becomes manipulation. 
And love ultimately heals what even our hurt denies. You see, Nehemiah, he was concerned about Jerusalem for two primary reasons. First, it was the Jews' holy capital city. And second, it not only represented the Jewish national identity, it was also blessed with God's special presence in the temple. So Nehemiah, he actually breaks down and weeps when he hears that Jerusalem walls were not rebuilt yet. Now I'm an emotional guy. <laughs> I've been known to cry during some uh, movies. We jokingly say um, I'm sympathetic, sympathetically ovulating. <laughs> Throwing that out there. I, I'm an emotional guy. <laughs> but why do you think this upset Nehemiah so much that the, the walls weren't rebuilt? You know, walls, they don't mean as much to us today, uh, depending on where you live and, and who you voted for. Um, <laughs> but in Nehemiah's time, walls were essential as we would consider uh, electricity or running water today. The walls, they offered safety from raids, but they also symbolized strength and peace. You see, Nehemiah, he also mourned for his people because there was a previous edict, just a law, um, from Cyrus the Great that had kept them from rebuilding their walls we see that in Ezra 4, 6. And having traveled to Israel and getting to, to see and pray at the Western Wall, um, it's arguably the most religious site in the world for uh, the Jewish people. It's located in the old city of uh, Jerusalem, and it's actually the, the Western support wall of the Temple Mount. You know, thousands of people go there every year um, to recite prayers um, at the wall. But underground in the Kotel tunnels is what they call the Western Stone. It's the largest stone in history um, that was ever moved without the aid of machinery. And I actually, when I came up yesterday, it is the exact dimensions of this stage. It is 45 feet long, it is 13 feet deep, and it is 12 feet high. Picture a foundation stone that big. So on top of that stone, me and one of the friends that we went to Israel with took the prayer and the dedication to the Lord for our little angel, Sydney. And we put that prayer on top of that foundation rock. And that's where it probably still sits to this day. Amen? That thing weighed 1.14 million pounds or 570 tons. Just picture trying to move something that enormous. So next time when you look at the stage, you can think about that Western stone. Now, Nehemiah, he probably had what um, many would consider a cushy job. Uh, he was the cupbearer for Darius, uh, the king of Persia. And he didn't have to care about the problems in Jerusalem. In fact, he'd never even been there, <laughs> but he cared about these people anyway. As part of his job, he didn't just make sure the king's food and drink you know, weren't poison. Um, he was a trusted advisor, um, and he was even allowed to be in the queen's presence. And we're gonna circle back to that little throwaway line um, a little bit later on. Nehemiah, he was also a man of prayer. Nine times in this short book, <laughs> Nehemiah prayed. He prayed about every decision he made every crisis he faced, every criticism he endured. When we know what to do, we should pray. <laughs> when we don't know what to do, we should pray. We've got to be people of prayer, seeking God out. Amen? Yeah. Nehemiah was a man of courage. Like when he expressed his sadness to the king in chapter 2-5, he says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. It's hard to kind of comprehend this, this fact that for Nehemiah to even show um, sadness in front of the king could have been a death sentence for him. But he showed that anyway. He showed that emotion in front of the king. And at its core, courage is just another word for faith. 
It's being willing to take a risk. It's standing up for righteousness and for justice. And in chapter 4, we see those who were opposed to Nehemiah's rebuilding of the wall. And opposition, you're normally fighting one person. Nehemiah was going up against the, the Samaritans, the, the Philistines, the Hamanites, um, and he was actually going up against his own people. So he has at least four adv- adversarial forces that were threatening now to come back and attack. So we see Nehemiah, he divides the people up by families, and he assigns each family to build the section of wall that was closest to their house. Genius, right? <laughs> then he splits the men into two shifts. One shift focused on the work, while the other shift focused on protecting the wall. It's like having a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Amen? And in Nehemiah 4.14, he addresses the people. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives and fight for your homes. This was his battle cry. You see, there's a war being raged, and I can promise you that there will always be those who are opposed to the will and the work of God in our lives. So we have to learn how to be as wise as serpent and as gentle as doves. Amen? Third and lastly, Nehemiah was a man of conviction. And while he faced great opposition, he never gave up. Instead, he just moved forward based upon these convictions. Like I said, eight separate times people tried to stop him from rebuilding this wall. Yet he just kept going. And we see his opponents, this is actually one of his supposed friends, try to make him take refuge, refuge in the temple. In Nehemiah 6.11, it says, But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And at first glance, you know, you don't really know what's, what's going on, why he wouldn't want to take refuge in the temple. But according to God's law, it would have been wrong for Nehemiah to go into the temple and hide because for starters, he wasn't a priest. We see that in Numbers 18.22. And if he had run for his life, he would have undermined the courage he was trying to instill in his very own people. And remember that verse that we were going to circle back to? He was allowed to be in the queen's presence. Um, in all likelihood, if you were not of royal lineage, if you were a servant, um, the males were going to be um, most likely eunuchs. Um, it's something you know commentators debate on. Um, but this was definitely um, another one of the things that were, was going on. The people knew his status. You know, Ezra at this time was the priest, and, and Nehemiah knew that he wouldn't be able to participate in the temple. And I think that's why he focused so much on the walls. Um, he wasn't going to be able to participate in, in the ceremonies within the temple. And I think in our own lives, there are some things that disqualify us from things. Um, there are some things that prevent us from doing things, but that doesn't mean there's other things out there um, that God is calling us to do. Amen? You see, the whole purpose of the enemies Nehemiah was facing and this false prophet, they were trying to incite him to commit a ritual transgression. And this would have discredited him in the eyes of his own people. And it would have caused them to to not cooperate and to finish the wall. But despite these tactics, because Nehemiah had compassion, because he had courage, and because he had conviction, in just 52 days, Nehemiah and his team finished the walls. But it's interesting, when they were halfway built, that's when the onslaught came. That's when the attacks came. You see, the devil will let us self-destruct. He'll let us spiral out of control. It's when we turn back to God and start moving towards the plans that he has for our life that those attacks are going to happen. So we've got to be ready for him. Amen? Amen? The total length of these walls was two and a half miles. 
Their average height was 40 feet, and they were over eight feet thick. They had 34 watchtowers, and at this point in history, there were seven main gates that entered into the city. My first, um, call it rebuilding effort, was on a mission trip I took to Kenya, Africa. It was with uh, Youth for Christ way back when I was a freshman in high school. Oh, my gosh, it's my, (laughs) how many year reunion? 25-year reunion? (laughs) I'm getting so old. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But it was on this trip I saw just how happy people could be when the Lord was their source of happiness. Not their position in life, not their possessions, not what other people thought of them. It was also the first time I came face-to-face with this courageous Maasai tribe, where I was the first time in my life the minority. Part of our mission there was to build a mile worth of fence around this school and this village to keep out the predatorial animals. We literally had a sharpshooter with us in case any of the animals got too close for comfort. And we worked in shifts until we had dug holes and posts and strung five strands of barbed wire around the entire compound. And it was a life-transforming trip. Oh, my gosh except for the part where our anti-malarial medication said we were to avoid direct sunlight. It's like, um, we're in Africa. The sun's right here. <laughs> it's going to be kind of hard to do that. <laughs> and you guys know I don't have the best luck in life. <laughs> I'm the guy who gets hit by a truck. I'm the guy whose house gets supercharged by a bolt of lightning and blows up the chimney. I'm the guy who loses his vision from anesthesia. <laughs> I mean, I'm allergic to what they give you when you have an allergic reaction. You can't make that stuff up. So when I start hearing about, like, murder hornets, I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, the way I go is going to be definitely one of those things, no joke. (laughs) But learning how to build, learning how to rebuild, like I said, they're going to be crucial skills. Um, And a lot of those I learned going on these mission trips all around the world. You know, it's been by experiencing these diverse civilizations that I learned the importance of respect and how to bridge the gap between vastly different cultures and belief systems. And our children, this emerging generation, they're going to have a very different reality than the ones we grew up in. And if your children, if your youth are part of our next-gen ministry, consider yourself blessed. (laughs) Getting to see firsthand how Luke and Kira pour love and godly wisdom and counsel into these precious children's lives, it's so beautiful. (laughs) And today I truly hope that each one of you realizes just how much of a part you have in reshaping the future with the people God has placed in your life and the places you work in your homes. You see, great leaders, they have strongly held beliefs, which often makes them the target for attacks. An opinion is merely something we would debate, while a conviction is something we're willing to die for. And some hills are worth dying on. And Nehemiah was definitely a man of conviction because he believed strongly that God had called him to this job and nothing was going to stop him from doing it. So no matter our age, no matter our race, no matter our gender, we all have a role to play in rebuilding our lives and reshaping our culture. So my prayer today is that we would be known as a generation that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that our Heavenly Father would hear us from heaven, that we would pour out His Spirit on this dry and thirsty land, that His life, that His truth would illuminate the darkness that's attempting to shroud this world and cause such disunity in our lives. Please remember that perfect love drives out fear. So each of us must also learn to be a conduit that God is able to use to pour out his unconditional love, his unending grace, and his limitless mercy through to this lost and hurting world. Amen? Amen.